Welcome to Her Story Sessions. I'm Brittany, a woman on a mission to learn more about women through history and to share it all with you. If you like this show, be sure to follow me. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session and can be emailed at herstorysessionspodcast at gmail.com. I'm someone that votes not just during the presidential elections, but also votes during midterms, and I pay attention to all levels of government and do at least some research on anyone I vote for. I think it's an important part of our society to pay attention to and be involved in. Voting is my right as an American citizen, and I do my best to make good use of that right. It's not something I take for granted, though, and I'm thankful for the women that came before me that fought so that I can have that right. In the U.S., women's suffrage came from a broader movement for women's rights and began to gain steam in 1840s. At first, they pushed for rights at local and state levels, then later moving on to fight for the right at the national level. In many local areas, states and territories did have the right to vote for women before the 19th Amendment was made legal across the country. This movement spanned a long time, and many, many people were involved in it, and I obviously can't cover them all, but each and every one of them mattered. The first Women's Rights Convention was held in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote the Declaration of Sentiments, which expanded on the Declaration of Independence, adding the words woman and women throughout it. Elizabeth was born November 12, 1815, in Johnstown, New York, to a prominent family. She was formally educated at the Johnstown Academy and at Emma Willard's Troy Female Seminary in New York, but also gained some legal education from her father, who was a lawyer, by talking to him about his work and listening in on his conversations with guests and colleagues. In 1840, she married Henry Stanton, an abolitionist and lecturer, and she became involved in the abolitionist movement as well. While on their honeymoon in London, they attended the World's Anti-Slavery Convention, where she met Lucretia Mott. The two were angry about the exclusion of women from participating, which eventually led them to hold the Women's Rights Convention in 1848. Elizabeth's Declaration of Sentiments was a call for social and legal changes to the status of women. It also listed 18 grievances from the lack of control over their wages or property, the difficulty of gaining custody during a divorce, and the lack of the right to vote. She also circulated petitions through New York, urging New York Congress to pass the New York Married Women's Property Act, which allowed women to keep and control their property upon marriage. She began to prioritize the women's suffrage movement more and more, although she continued to work for other women's rights, too. She met Susan B. Anthony in 1851, and the two began collaborating and worked together for more than 50 years. A champion of temperance, abolition, the rights of labor, and equal pay for equal work, Susan was born on February 15, 1820, in Adams, Massachusetts, and was raised as a Quaker. Her belief that everyone was equal under God inspired her to later become an activist, and many of her siblings became activists, too. When she was six, they moved to Battenville, New York, where her father managed cotton mill. She was sent to a Quaker boarding school in Philadelphia when she was 17, but had to leave after one term when her family ran into financial problems during the economic turndown, where they lost nearly everything, only being saved by an uncle. Susan left home again to help support the family by teaching at another Quaker boarding school, then moved to become headmistress at the female department of the Kata Johori Academy in 1846. Her mother and sister had attended the Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls, but Susan, still being away from home, did not. At 26 and away from the Quaker influence for the first time, she began to dress more stylishly rather than the traditional plain clothes Quakers usually wore and dropped some of the forms of speech that Quakers were known for, such as still using the word thee. 
She also became frustrated with the difference in pay between men and women doing similar jobs. She taught for several years until the academy closed in 1849, and she joined her family, who had moved to Rochester, New York. William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass were friends of her father's, and listening to them made her want to help the abolition movement even more and work on other social reform issues. She gave many passionate speeches against slavery, although most thought it was improper for a woman to do so. She also never married because single women had more freedoms than married women did. After Elizabeth and Susan met, they worked on speeches, articles, and books, traveled the country together, and Susan continued to give speeches, sometimes risking arrest to share her ideas publicly. When Elizabeth couldn't travel due to motherhood demands, she wrote speeches for Susan to deliver while she traveled. They paused their efforts for women's rights during the Civil War, and Elizabeth became involved in the Civil War efforts, and she was joined by Susan in support of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. When the war was over, Elizabeth was able to travel more, joining Susan and becoming a well-known women's rights activist across the country. She gave speeches on maternity, child rearing, divorce law, married women's property rights, temperance, abolition, and presidential campaigns. In 1866, the two women co-founded the American Equal Rights Association, and in 1868 began publishing a weekly newspaper called The Revolution, spreading ideas about equality for rights of women. Its motto was, men, their rights, and nothing more. Women, their rights, and nothing less. Susan began to lecture to raise funds for the paper and the movement, running the business side of the paper while Elizabeth co-edited it along with Parker Pillsbury. In 1869, the 14th Amendment had been passed, which defined citizens and voters as exclusively male, and the 15th Amendment was in the works, which gave black men the right to vote. Elizabeth and Susan opposed both amendments, believing that rights should be given to both women and black men at the same time, while others supported getting the rights for black men first, then working on getting them for women. This caused a rift in the American Equal Rights Association, and they split off, forming the National Women's Suffrage Association with the goal of getting a congressional amendment to the Constitution. In 1872, Susan was arrested for voting for the presidential election, and she voted for Ulysses S. Grant. Fourteen other women had joined her and were arrested but released. She was brought to trial, bringing national attention to the suffrage movement. The trial was moved from Rochester to a federal court, and United States versus Susan B. Anthony was closely followed by the national press. The judge fined her $100, but she never paid it. The judge could have jailed her until it was paid, but he never did. In 1890, Elizabeth and Susan worked to merge the National Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association to create the new National American Women's Suffrage Association, which Susan led until 1900 when she retired. In the 1800s, Stanton began to write more rather than traveling and lecturing, writing several books until her death in 1902. Susan continued to travel and lobbying Congress each year. She passed away in 1906. Neither Susan or Elizabeth saw their goal achieved during their lives, but Alice Paul, who saw them as role models, would. She was born on January 11, 1885, in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, to Quaker parents. Her father was a president of the Burlington County Trust Company, which supported the farm the family lived on. Hired labor did most of the heavy work on the farm, but the family members still had small tasks and chores to do, and Alice and her three siblings were also raised with the Quaker belief in gender equality and that they each had a duty to work for the betterment of society. The family was well off but still lived relatively simple lives following the anti-materialistic views of Quaker practices. Alice went to a Quaker school in Moorestown, graduating first in her class in 1901. 
Her mother ensured that all of her children went to college, and Alice attended Swarthmore College, a co-ed school founded by her grandfather, and while there, she was taught by some of the leading female academics of the time. After college, she went to New York to work in the settlement movement, which had the goal of bringing the rich and poor together, both in physical proximity and social interconnectedness. She also pursued education in the brand new field of social work and attended lectures at the New York School of Philanthropy, earning a Master of Arts degree in sociology and worked to improve others' lives and her experience there highlighted issues and gender and economic disparities in society. She decided to go to England to continue her education more and went to Birmingham in 1907 to continue social work at the Woodbrook Settlement. While there, she met Christabel and her mother Emmeline Parkhurst, two of Britain's most radical suffragettes of the time. She learned militant-like protest tactics from them, being arrested multiple times and going on hunger strikes while imprisoned. She returned to America with a much more radical views on the suffrage movement. While earning her Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania, she joined the National American Women's Suffrage Association and was soon appointed lead of the Congressional Committee in charge of working towards a federal amendment. In 1912, she joined Lucy Burns and Crystal Eastman in Washington, D.C., and she and Lucy organized Huge Women's March up Pennsylvania Avenue for March 13, 1913, the day before the inaugural parade of Woodrow Wilson. Inez Milhond, a lawyer, activist, and socialite devoted to the cause, led the march, dressed in Greek robes and riding a white horse. She led some 8,000 women with banners and floats from the Capitol to the White House. They were harassed and shouted at by spectators, and the event made headlines all across the country. Alice had different strategy ideas than the NAWSA did, leading to tensions within the group. She split from them and formed the National Women's Party, and in 1917, they organized the first-ever public picketing in front of the White House. Called Silent Sentinels for the way they stood quietly and didn't interact with anyone, the women stood outside no matter the weather six days a week for 18 months. They held banners and signs that said things like, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? When the U.S. entered World War I, calls for unity and patriotism across the country spread, and many thought that they should stop their picketing during wartime. Alice was determined, though, and they continued despite criticism from both inside and outside the Women's Suffrage Party. They even criticized Wilson for supporting democracy abroad but not at home and started carrying banners that read Kaiser Wilson. Many saw them as unpatriotic and attacked them, and the police arrested them on weak charges of obstructing traffic. Many refused to pay their fines, citing that they had not broken any laws while exercising their First Amendment rights, and they were then jailed. Several, including Alice, went on hunger strikes while in jail and were subjected to forced feedings, and Alice was moved to a sanitarium in an effort to have her declared insane. Newspapers wrote accounts of the women's treatment, garnering sympathy for the women and their cause. Public demand for the release of the women began to grow, and finally the women were set free. President Wilson was facing a lot of pressure and criticism now and declared his support of a new amendment. He met with Congress over the next few months to gain their support, and in 1919, the House of Representatives and the Senate voted to pass the bill and sent it to the states for ratification, and it was made national law on August 18, 1920, when Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify it, the number needed to have it succeed, and it was certified on August 26th. Several other states took several years to ratify it, though, with Mississippi being the last, not ratifying it until 1984. 
Most articles and timelines I read about suffrage end in 1920 with the 19th Amendment, which states no one can be denied the right to vote based on sex. So that's it. It was over. And the woman won, right? Not exactly. The stories I just told you focus on middle or upper class white women. Many minority women or women in poverty were still unable to vote due to other discriminations, although they took part in the suffrage movement too. Ida B. Wells, a black woman and famous journalist and suffrage advocate, took part in the 1913 march and defied the organizers' orders that she march in the back. Although early suffragists had allied with the abolitionists, later on, many black women were largely excluded from the major white-led movements. Most in the South were blocked from voting by poll taxes, literacy tests, and other racially discriminatory barriers. It took the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to give many black women the right to vote. I actually came across an article titled African American Women and the 19th Amendment, and I'll post the link to it in the show notes. It mentions scores of women that participated in the suffrage movement. In 1920, Asians and Native Americans were largely blocked from gaining citizenship, meaning they were unable to vote too. Marie Louise Botnew Baldwin, a Chippewa woman studying law at 49 years old, was also in the 1913 march in D.C. Native Americans would have to wait for the Snyder Act of 1924 to gain citizenship and vote. Mabel Pinghua Lee was a Chinese immigrant that was a well-known suffragist in New York and led a suffrage parade in 1912, despite not being eligible for citizenship because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which wasn't repealed until 1943. I believe that as a woman, I should have equal rights to men, but I also believe that all women, regardless of race, economic standing, or anything else, are equal. It's important that we remember minority groups when we talk about history, because they're important too. That's all for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session.